You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Courtney Rodriguez, and I have the privilege of serving with Compass Kids on Wednesday nights. Um, Today, we will be reading 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Um, You can use that today. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful to be with you on this holy and most sanctified of days known as Taylor Swift Sunday. (laughs) But we are here in this room to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where we're at today. So 1 Timothy, where we're at, um, as you just heard in that text, there is probably, as we come to the end of chapter two in our study of 1 Timothy, There may be no other piece of scripture that has created more discussion, more debate, and even more damage in some ways um, in the church than this one right here. A a text that speaks directly, even prohibitively, um, about some of the specific roles of men and women in the church. One scholar said this, and I agree with him, said, with as much heat as has been generated in this text... Unfortunately, in many pulpits uh, across our churches, there hasn't been given enough light from this text. And so for me personally, I'm I'm actually excited for us to be in this text today uh, because I think when we are able to see it in its proper light, then we can begin to see the beauty, uh, the beautiful design that is, that is in God's intention for men and women in the church that is intended to lead all of us to flourishing and not frustration. Um, Now, like anything else that we do here, context is key. And so recap, where have we been? What is this letter about? First Timothy chapter one, we saw that this is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote in the first century to his young protege, who has been appointed as pastor over the church in Ephesus, one of the leading influential cities of the Roman Empire. And here's this church there, but it's got a problem. It's been hijacked by false teaching. And these false teachers have begun to lead God's people away from the imperative of why we exist as a church to bring glory to God through the salvation that comes by heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ because God's heart in sending us on Jesus into the world is to save sinners. And that is why we're here. But these false teachers have begun to teach a a doctrine of works that was extra burdening the church and leading them away from Christ's grace. And so after setting forth and recalibrating our mission, Paul then moves into chapter two, where he starts talking about then what should be primary when it comes to our assembling together and what should lead the way is prayer. We talked about this last week us humbly as the assembled church, men and women on our face, praying to our God who rules and reigns on high that he and he alone who's the only one who can see this mission go forward and bear fruit that he would bless it for the salvation of others. And so we see that importance and that primacy of prayer that is there. Now, as we head to the end of chapter two, we're gonna learn about some of the more specific details about these false teachers that has led to chaos in the gathered church there in Ephesus. And there are two specific things that we're gonna see drawn out in this text today that were causing problems in that church gathering. One has to do with ungodly men who were bringing division in the gathering. 
And the other has to do with ungodly women who were bringing both disruption and distraction in the assembled church gathering. And this is what Paul's gonna address the rest of this chapter. And in doing so, he's gonna seek to reset the church in accordance with the design that God has intended to bring about order, godliness, and flourishing. Now, I want you to note right out of the gate here in verse eight, right after highlighting the importance of prayer in the local gathering of the church, Paul then addresses the men who were supposed to be leading out in those prayers. And he says, I desire, now for the Bible nerds in the room, make a note, that word desire is a different word than the one that was used in verse four that we saw last week. This is not fellow, the general wish that somebody has, that God wishes, God's desires that all would be saved. This is the word bulimai, which means a wish that is in accordance with a decreed plan that God has ordered and set in place. And so he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the men here that are in this context are most likely the leaders of the congregation. We're gonna see them in a few verses later next week when we get to chapter three, when Paul speaks about these leaders of the congregation. The every place that they are leading in most likely are the various house churches that are scattered throughout the city of Ephesus where the church was gathering. And Paul's main aim here is that the men who are leading the prayer times in those gatherings would do so out of godliness. And this is important, the false teachers They were not leading the church out of godliness and righteousness. They had unclean motivations in their agenda for leadership. These men weren't utilizing the gathered church to lead God's people in a humble, dependent prayer that God would bring salvation even to the king like Nero, as we talked about last week. No, instead, they were using these gatherings to stir up division, to to create dissension, to bring about quarreling and even bring about insurrection. And Paul reminds Timothy, this is not how the leading men of the church are to lead. They are to lead the church in prayer with holiness. And this is in keeping with what God had prescribed all along for his people all through the Old Testament. When all the people would assemble at the temple and they would make their pilgrimage up There was a procession that was led by the priests, by the leaders of these gatherings who they would come up. And in that, the the exhortation was this. Here's an example, Psalm 24, verses three and four. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? We're going up to to the temple for worship. Who shall stand in its holy place? Who are the people who are supposed to be leading those worship gatherings? It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This is what God demanded of the leaders and the under shepherds of his people, men with clean hands, pure hearts, and humble dependence before God. Now, Paul's gonna return to this next week, chapter three, just a few verses later, he's gonna pick right back up where he's going to carefully line out what it is that actually qualifies these particular men to be able to lead um, as an elder within Christ's church. So we'll return to this. But next, he's going to turn from the divisive men in the church to now addressing some distracting and disrupting women that were also in this gathered church as well. As best as we can tell, Um, from what the exhortations are that are about to come is that there appears to be two two main issues with a particular group of women who had been influenced by these false teachers there in Ephesus. One of them is gonna have to do with some wealthier women in the church who are using their external appearance in order to bring unnecessary distraction in the gathering. 
And the second issue probably has to do with the same women that were there in Ephesus who are also disrupting those gatherings by usurping the authority of the church and commandeering the teaching of the church in those moments. We see this, verse 9 and 10. Paul, after addressing the men, then says, likewise. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who are professing godliness, that is with good works. Now, one of the things that we know about Ephesus is that it was one of the leading cities of the Roman Empire. And it was one of the most um, affluential cities of the Roman Empire. So much wealth was in this city. In fact, every time I lead a trip to Ephesus, and again, unashamed plug here, last week, if you want to sign up, come to Ephesus, Turkey with us. We go in there. One of the the excavations that's so well-preserved are the homes of the wealthy. And it's unbelievable the opulence that existed in conjunction with the rest of the city that was around it in some of these homes and the innovations that were there. But with that with that influence, with that affluence, with all that wealth that was there, much like we experience in the city of Dallas, there is a tendency that some of those wealthy folks, some of the most affluent folks, uh, and in this particular case appears to be some of the leading women that may have been present here in these gatherings, it was common for them to come to the church's gatherings in over-the-top, ornate fashion to attract attention to themselves and even at time do so in some very seductive ways. Now you need to know this, I've been in enough affluent congregations and affluent cities that I've pastored in where this is not just a female issue, this is a man and woman issue, this is a human issue, where on a bad day we can use the church's gatherings as a red carpet fashion show as like we're showing up to the Kentucky Derby, uh, minus the mint juleps that are in our hands or something. But this is, this is, a, this is a human problem. And, it, and what's being addressed here is not just that it's not okay to dress fly every now and again and have some cool sneaks or whatever you want to do. What we're talking about here is the motivations that underlie this. When we wake up in the morning and we think about our gathering as a church, what is fueling our motivation in this gathering? Is it that we would come here so that we can draw attention and attraction to the glory of God in adoration and worship of him? Or is the first thing running through our minds that we would show up in such a way with our presence in such a way that would attract attention unto us? That's what's being addressed here. Paul says, just as the men were not embracing godliness in their role in the gatherings, Likewise, so it was with some particular women that were there. And as those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ, what should be the most noticeable thing about us, Paul is saying, is not our external wealth and uh, beauty. It's not the adornment of those things, but rather the internal adornment of godliness. That should be the lead story in our lives. And as demonstrated, Paul says, in righteous works. Like this, this should be most telling about a Christian. Peter would say the same thing in his letter that he wrote to the church. Sounds very familiar. First Peter three, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden and be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And again, this goes both ways with men and women. It goes both ways, but certainly there appears to be a unique problem that was there in Ephesus with a particular group of women who were causing significant distraction with their external dress. Now, this should be an issue every one of us, every one of us should be careful to examine our own selves in. Like we should look into our own hearts and ask, why are we gathering as a church? What is most precious and most important that we're trying to draw attention to? And listen, we live in a world where our world is screaming at us and especially to young women, catechizing them that your external appearance is the most important thing about you. I have a wife, I have five daughters 
And as every one of us, all seven of us are rehearsing the gospel in our lives every day, it is still a constant threat with me and with them to feel that our worth is in our looks, it's in our Um, It's in our abilities. It's what we can bring to the table that will make other people notice us. And it's crippling. It's crippling in our culture. And and Paul's reminding us of what God already said in Samuel, that God's not after the external appearance. He's not like the rest of our culture. He's looking at the internal condition of the heart. That's what matters the most here. And so we would do well to examine our own selves, but I need to say this while we're here. We also need to be real careful about how we publicly police this issue. There have been many, many people over the years in my pastoral ministry who have loved to pull me aside and say, Pastor, can you get up on stage and say something about how these people are dressing today? Whether it's scantily clad, whether it's in the summer and clothes are dropping off or whatever it may be. But you need to know there was a time when I was pastoring up in Flower Mound, which is also an affluent little community. And this lady came up to me at the beginning of the service, before the service began, and she was floored mad and said, Shay, you need to get up on that stage and you need to tell these women they look like a bunch of strippers. Now, here's the deal, and I'm not making this up. I looked at her and I said, ma'am, that's because there are strippers that are in this room right now. We had a lady in our congregation who had come out of the strip club scene. She was doing makeup and God redeemed her. And her mission was to go evangelize these women and care for them with compassion. And that night she had invited about a dozen strippers to come up to the church. And I looked at this lady and I said, so you want me to get up on stage and the first thing that they hear is shame on you. No, ma'am. They're here tonight because they need to encounter the living God. They need to know there's a God enthroned on I who loves them. And it was sent his son, Jesus, to save them. And then as they give their faith to him, the Holy Spirit from the inside out through the process of discipleship and formation will begin to make them look more like Jesus. Our job is to meet people where they're at right now. You never know who's around you. So be careful of drive-by shamings because you just don't know who's present here. Now, that being said, there's a second issue that's going on here. In addition to some of these women who are being physically distracting, there's also possibly these very same women who were also verbally disrupting. And here's where these classic verses come in, in verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, church, let me just say this right out of the gate. It is very important right now that we understand context of these two verses before we go put them on Twitter, okay? Before we make these universal statements that come calling down thunder on Paul and on the church, there are, there's four questions that I think we need to ask and answer about these prohibitions that are put here. Now, I don't have time to hit every tributary that's here. There is much more discussion that needs to be had past what I'm going to preach on in this hour. But you need to know this, four questions we've got to ask and answer about what is going on here. Here's the four questions. Number one, what is the cause that is even necessitating this prohibition? Second, what is the scope of this prohibition? In other words, is this a universal command for all women at all times and all places? Or is there something more limited that is in view here? Third, what is the aim of this particular prohibition that's mentioned here? Are we talking about two separate things, teaching and exercising authority over man, or are these conveying one main idea that's connected? Got to answer that question. And then fourthly, what is the basis that Paul roots this prohibition in? Is this Paul just saying, this is just what I think? This is just what culture was at this time? Or is there something else that is driving this prohibition? So let's look at these four real quick. Number one, what's the cause behind this prohibition? 
Again, the problem in Ephesus, we don't have all the details here. We don't have Timothy's original letter to Paul that's describing all the events that are happening. We don't have that communication. But based on all the instruction that's in this book, we're able to put some things together to get an idea of what's going on. And it appears that some of these specific women who had been incited by these false teachers have been incited to go rogue. We're gonna find out in chapter four and five that one of the teachings of the false teachers is telling single women that marriage and family was beneath them, that, that it was less than, and they should not pursue those things. They were too hard, too messy, stay single and keep going. Like that was one of the messages. And, and we're gonna get to that as we get to chapter four and five. But one of the other things that's going on here is they appear that they had incited these women that in the gathering of the church, they'd incited some of these women to stand up. And we don't know exactly when, maybe it was when one of the scrolls was being read or when prophecies were being given and interpreted. But either way, they would stand up and they were countering the authority of the teaching of the elders in that gathering. Now, to be fair, that would be a problem with anyone, male or female, in any venue where somebody wants to get up on their own authority and act like they can commandeer the room. But for Paul, there's a bigger issue at hand here concerning the roles of men and women that, God, that he believes God has ordained that were getting reversed in that gathering. That appears to be the cause behind this. What is the scope of this? Is Paul saying that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over man in any time, any place, any room, any circumstance, period? Or is there something else in mind? I clearly think this is not what Paul has in mind, is that this is some universal statement. We see many places in scripture where a woman is encouraged to teach. Paul is going to encourage them, even when we get over to the book of Titus, to take the younger women and pour into them. Second Timothy chapter one, Paul's gonna commend both Eunice and Lois, Timothy's mom and grandmother, for all that they taught him and shaped his life and trajectory in. Colossians chapter three, Paul says that members of the church, presumably men and women, should teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then of course, Acts chapter 18, we're gonna see women like Priscilla and there's other notable women. Priscilla who had an incredible ministry and even teaching Apollos alongside her with her husband, Aquila, about the true understanding of gospel-centered baptism. And then when it comes to exercising authority, even in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul endorses women prophesying and praying in the church and then says in 1 Corinthians 14 that men can learn from such women. And then we've got cases like Deborah, of course, in the Old Testament who led in her own right as a judge, but... I don't think anywhere in here, Paul has the idea that a woman can't lead a Fortune 500 company, that she can't be the, the principal of a high school or she can't run for politics or run for president. God help us. I'd love for a right woman right now. You got a few months left. Get your name in, in the arena. Vote for you right now. Let's go. That's not what Paul has in mind here. No, the context that seems to be in view here is limited to the gathered church, the assembly of the church, such as we have in this room right here on this Sunday. Now, what is the aim? The aim, are these two separate prohibitions or are these two making up one connected idea? This is important and very debated right here. There are those who would see teaching and exercising authority over man as two separate things. And therefore, the implications of that would be that any room in the church where a man is present, there is not to be a woman teaching in that room. And any room or any team where there is a man present should not have a woman that's leading that room or that team. There is a view that goes that way. There are others, though, who would see this prohibition through a grammatical lens that is known as a hendiitis. Big word, sounds like a rash that needs some ointment. A hendiitis, though, is the idea of two words or phrases that are used as an expression to convey one main idea. Uh, we do this all the time in culture. We 
especially in Texas right now, we go, man, it's good and wet outside right now. Well, is it good or is it wet? Yes. We would say, man, that guy over there, that girl, man, they're made in spit and image of God. Is it spit or is it the image of God? Yes. Or I listen to country and Western. Is it country? Is it Western? Is it even good? We don't, I don't know. I mean, you could go either way. Not two separate things independent of each other, but two things that are used as an expression to convey one idea. In other words, some would say that teaching and the exercising of authority are certainly two unique functions, but are being connected here by the Apostle Paul to refer to a particular role, a particular office that God has ordained in the church for not just any man, but a qualified man to fulfill that carries with it an authoritative teaching, that this is what Paul is speaking to. Now, I will tell you this, grammatically, in the original Greek language, it can go either way. It is argued either way. And, and I, I don't really know how Paul is intending this, hendiitis or not, but I would say this, my lean and our elders lean here is that contextually, this is leaning towards the hendiitis view. And here's why three things that I would say. One, what is the context of this passage? Where does this prohibition fall? Remember in the original letter, we don't have verse numbers and we don't have chapter numbers. This is a letter. What is flanking these prohibitions? Verse eight, instruction on the men who are leading the worship gatherings and prayer. And then in chapter three, a list of qualifications for a qualified man to hold known as the office of elder in the church. That appears to be the context is we're talking about the role of an elder here over the church in which this, this uh, prohibition falls. Secondly, notice how verse 12 coincides with verse 11. This is important. Paul says quietness. That is in conjunction with teaching. A woman's not to teach, but to be quiet. Those go hand in hand submissiveness goes hand in hand with exercising of authority. Now, these two things together seem to be, there is a function that goes hand in hand. And thirdly, what I would say is these two functions of teaching and exercise authority in Paul's letters, these happen to be the only two things that separate a deacon from an elder. So I think this appears that what Paul is referring to here is not just a woman can't teach or exercise over a man in any other room or anything else. It was speaking to the office of elder in the authoritative teaching role that is given to a qualified man, as we're going to see next week in chapter three. Now, if all that is true, we have to ask the question, fourthly, why? What is the basis for Paul saying that a woman is not to serve in the role of an elder in the authoritative teaching role over the gathered church. Why? What is this rooted in? Now, without looking at the next verse, I want to ask you, what do you think would be the biggest pushback in our day to those prohibitions that are given in verse 11 and 12? Most would say, well, surely this is just a cultural issue much like the dress that we were just talking about. This is a cultural issue that existed in Paul's day. This is a Middle Eastern patriarchal society where women were often oppressed. This is a book written by men for men in order to oppress women. Um, times have changed and we have progressed. First of all, that sounds more like Karl Marx talking about it than Apostle Paul. But honestly, I might agree with that defense if it weren't for verse 13. Notice what Paul roots this command in. It's not rooted in culture. It's not, hey, this is just how things were in our day. It's not, hey, this is what I, my hot sports opinion, what I think's good. It's not um, qualified by some unique Ephesus con context clue that these were some radicalized women who are following the cult of Artemis. He's not rooting that anywhere in here. What he roots it in is all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Listen to this. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Can I just be candid for just a moment and say, if I weren't trained in the scriptures and I was still trying to be faithful, I'd be like, Paul, how many landmines can you put in one passage without me blowing myself up in front of this room right now? But here's the deal. Paul is not, it's real important we understand what he's saying here. A lot of hijacking's been done on these texts. In other words, Paul is not rooting this instruction based on culture, but he's rooting it based on God's creative order. That there's a design that God had from the very beginning that first was inaugurated in the home and is intended to carry on in the church. Now, Paul is reminding us of a beautiful complementary design that God has given for men and women to play their unique roles together in such a way that the creation mandate would never happen if only one did their thing and the other just sat and watched. Both are uh, designed beautifully here. And and, and here's what we know about Genesis. I don't have time to pre-preach another two-year series on Genesis. Go back and refresh yourself, but let me just synthesize. What do we know about God's creating men and women in Genesis 1 and 2? First of all, most important, men and women were created equal. Equal. Made in the same image of God with the same dignity and worth. There is not one that is more superior than the other and there is not one that is inferior to the other. They are the same in their equal dignity and worth in displaying the image of God. However, we are also made purposely different, beautifully different. Contrary to popular cultural opinion right now, a way that is to be embraced in its beautiful design of difference. And we see that, yes, in our bodies, we are different people of the same essence as human, but different in our design. In our sexual anatomy, we complement one another. We fit together. I won't go any further than that, but there is a complementary design that works, that God created on purpose, that, that in our form and function, even in our bodies, think about our physical capacities and, and our abilities that we have that are different from one another, praise God, and how they are in accordance with the work that were originally given for Adam and Eve to do. Adam was given a different body, a stronger body in conjunction with the work that he was mandated to do in the garden, which was to tend to the earth, that he has a body that fits in accordance with that work. That's his role when it comes to the creation mandate of exercising dominion over the earth, filling and multiplying. But guess what? Can't multiply on his own, can't fill on his own. God gave woman a different design. She has an ability to do something that no man can do, contrary to popular cultural opinion in 2024, that she can actually cultivate life, that she actually has has that nurturing element in the garden. And that's not a demeaning thing. That's a beautiful thing. And these two have to work together in order for that creation mandate to go forth. They need each other. So there's a complementary design that is purposely given by God. But third, and as Paul references here in this text, God made man first for a reason. Now understand first doesn't mean best, doesn't mean better. If that's the case, then lizards are more superior to men because they were made before man. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Rather, in God's design of this first union of a husband and wife, the first man and the first woman, he designed man by creating him first, which was then giving him the position of head. The head is the one who is in the position of bearing ultimate responsibility and authority for the family. Not in a way that's uh, passive and deferring, nor a way that's dominant and abusing but one in which he bears the ultimate weight for this role. And then the woman who was created second and she was made out of the man, 
rather than out of the earth as Adam was. That was on purpose because she's given now the, the position of helpmate at his side, which again is not a demeaning role, but it's one that's necessary in conjunction with the man so they can fulfill this creation mandate of dominion that both of them have been given. Now, Adam is the one who's entrusted first with the commands that are in the garden of which trees you can eat from and which one you're not supposed to eat from. And he was intended to oversee and lead this union under the decree of God that would lead them both into flourishing. Which is why when Eve was the first to transgress that command by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't Eve who was held accountable. Doesn't mean she's not responsible, but it was Adam who God goes to, not Eve to hold him accountable for what had taken place there, which is exactly what verse 14 is getting at. When Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, became the transgressor. Now, please understand, this verse has been so hijacked to misunderstand why it's here. Paul is not highlighting, well, Eve's the one that did it. She's the one that's most gullible. She's the one that's most susceptible to temptation, that this is somehow a text proof that she's more naive and, and, and that's why a man's got to lead. And that's eventually why a man's got to lead as an elder in the church. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's speaking to here is that the sin in the garden wasn't just that Eve ate the forbidden fruit, that she was deceived, Adam wasn't. Adam was deceived too. He's not saying that. The higher sin that he's saying is that each of them in that moment had deviated from God's design and they had reversed their roles. That's what's going on in, in this moment. One of the ways I've heard it explained would be like this. Imagine a general and a, and a colonel that are going together into battle and they approach the enemy line and the enemy, rather than speaking to the general, addresses the colonel instead and puts that colonel in the place of being the spokesman of the group and begins twisting things and telling that colonel how this battle is going to play out, all while the general is sitting there passively doing nothing. You would be usurping roles in that moment right here. That's what's going on in the garden. In fact, in Romans chapter five, the same Paul who wrote these prohibitions and wrote this Genesis summary, he doesn't even mention Eve in Romans five. He mentions Adam as the one through whom sin entered the world. Adam was the one who bore the responsibility. Now, Paul brings all of this up to say that in God's design, there are two main arenas in which God has ordained that a woman not assume the role of head in that relationship, but the man does. And that is in the arena of her own family, the home, and in the family of God that is in the church. That in those two families, the role of head, God has given to a man. And understand, not just any man, but as we'll see next week when we talk about elders, a qualified man. Dang near 20 qualifications are gonna be given next week. Godliness, humility, gentleness. Those have to be in place lest we have some tyrannical monster hurting the home and hurting the church. So you wanna talk about a bigger issue than can a woman lead is what kind of dudes are we letting into these marriages and these churches that's the real issue. More on that in a second. But let's hit this last verse. Verse 15, tricky. Tricky, tricky end of the passage here. Let me clarify this as best I can. While this verse, yet she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, holiness, and self-control may seem potentially offensive to some or odd. Let me share with you what I believe makes this an, a beautiful verse of hope in the gospel that comes right off the heels of what Paul just got done quoting about the fall. There's a lot of interpretations that have been given on this text, some really weird ones, some awful ones. And then there's some that are worthy of our commending or at least thinking soberly. And some people think this is referring to Mary down the road and, and, and the birth of Jesus because in the Greek, it literally says the childbirth. 
the childbearing, like pointing to some specific one. But I don't think that's what's in mind here. This is where uh, a woman by the name of Noel Piper has been helpful for me, John Piper's wife, if you know him. It's been helpful on this. Think about it this way. Y'all remember the curse that God put on Eve in the garden and as subsequent, all women who would follow in Genesis 3. Do you remember what the curse was? You're gonna experience pain in childbirth or in childbearing. And the same was true for the man in his role. The curses were in accordance to the work they had been designed to do. The man was to tend the ground. And so his curses by the sweat of your brow, you're gonna have the, the earth's gonna give way to thorns and thistles. Your work's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be backbreaking from now on because that'll be a reminder to you of the curse that put you here. And for the woman, in accordance with what God designed for her, you're going to experience in childbearing, both in the labor itself and who knows, the bookends that are on all sides of mothering. There is going to be a pain associated there that is to be a reminder of the curse that put us in this situation. Now, that being said, this is where Noah is helpful. Pause for just a moment, if you would. Pause and feel the weight of what that has meant for women throughout the centuries, long before the common grace of medicine and epidurals had come into place. Think how many women have even died in childbirth and every time feeling the curse of God upon them. How easy would it have been for women to despair and hopelessness and feel as if God is against them, that he's their curser, not their savior. And yet here in this one verse, almost as a side note to the main arguments that Paul's trying to make here, Paul inserts a promise of hope in the midst of that pain. This does not mean that women who have babies uh, are gonna earn the salvation of God. It's an awful interpretation here. That's not what that means. This is the idea of progressive salvation. It is living out the salvation that you've already received that's full and final, that's in Christ by grace, but it is living it out through the tribulations and trials that have been appointed for you, persevering in hope and godliness all the way to the end, in faith. It's the same language, by the way, that's used in Philippians 2, where we're told to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It's not saying work for your salvation. It's saying work it out. You've already got it. Work it out, but it's gonna come through fear and trembling. Or 1 Corinthians 3, which says our salvation will ultimately come through fire. It's gonna be tested. You're gonna have to persevere in hope. And so Paul is saying to these women, feeling the weight of this, your salvation has already been given to you in Jesus Christ. And you are awaiting your final deliverance one day when that pain will be no more. But in the meantime, as you persevere through these tribulations and through this pain, let it be a reminder that this pain is not the end. It is only giving birth to what is to come and that is life. It's coming. Paul says the same thing to creation in Romans 8. All these birth pains are just temporary in light of the eternal weight of glory that is coming. So persevere, press on in godliness. I think that's what Paul's getting at right here. Now let me, let me finish here. Let me put some application on this. This is what I believe this text is teaching. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us? How does this play out here at Northway? Let me say a couple things. First of all, let me just say, there are many faithful Christians who disagree with how I just taught this passage. And that's okay. This is considered a secondary issue. This is not salvation. This is not the doctrine of grace by faith in Christ Jesus. This is a secondary issue one that should not divide Christ's church from the global mission that we've been called to, both for complementarians or egalitarians alike. But that being said, though this is a secondary issue, it doesn't mean that it's an insignificant issue. It matters. And it does mean that this text can be disobeyed, just as we saw happening in the church at Ephesus. And while I love and value and have many friends who are in egalitarian camps who feel that a woman can be an elder and can teach and be lead pastor on Sundays. I have many friends that are in those churches. 
I do not agree. I do think they're wrong. I think they misunderstood and misapplied this text because, not because of a cultural issue of our day, but because of the original design that God has given for the home family and the church family. And our desire here at Northway Church is to faithfully embrace this teaching with that conviction in such a way that we would see every woman and every man in this church flourish in God's designed and ordained roles for us and the gifts that he's given us as we fulfill God's mission together in our unique complementary ways. Now, that being said, let me speak briefly to the men and the women that are in this room right now concerning what we believe and what we desire to see here at Northway. First of all, we affirm the scripture's teaching that the role of the elder and overseer over the congregation is reserved not just for men, but for qualified men. As we're gonna talk about in detail next week. Many churches have used this text to emphatically make the argument of men leading in the church, but far too few of them have spent enough time soberly considering the qualifications needed for that role. It is not just bad theology from chapter two that produces misogynistic churches that are out there. It also is the bad application of chapter three that produces those misogynistic churches that are out there, whereby corrupt, ungodly, fleshly driven, abusive men are put in positions of leadership in the church that they had no business being in. No woman should ever feel safe under those kinds of men, never. Instead, we at Northway, we desire men of godly character and qualification who will lead in this gathering like we see in verse eight, men with holy hands and humble hearts. We will see next week in the list of qualifications for an elder that all that list is, is really exemplifying what every man in this church should be pursuing. Godliness, humility, gentleness in their leadership the kind of man that any woman should feel safe to be led by. That's what we're after. In terms of our women, our desire here at Northway is to see our women fly. We wanna see women soar, not be stifled. And my hope is that is the very testimony of the many women that you will see leading around here in this church. Cassie Bryant, who is at, the highest level of leadership in this church outside of being an elder who with her unique wisdom and gifting has literally God has used her for the last 19 going on 20 years to shape much of what this church is because of her godly leadership and influence that we are so thankful for. Women like Amanda Seeley uh, who leads our care and counseling ministry who is helping build a culture whereby men and women can be cared for rightly in this church together. All of our next-gen team, I think about Christy Pope, I think is in this room right now, J.C. Cruz, these godly women who are leading at such high levels. Lauren Clausen, who's writing most of the curriculum, curriculum that we're using around here. Lindsay Britton, who's leading our connections ministry and overseeing so many different departments of our church that are helping the cohesiveness and connection of our church to exist. Damaris Castillo, the queen of local missions around here, who is helping us engage on mission and, and is more connected than anybody I know put together in this church in our city and around here. Lori Hearn, who is overseeing like a mother hen of our gospel communities, mentoring so many women. Think about women like Kristen Bartley and Kathleen Bautista or, and others who are leading our women's Bible study and handling, accurately handling the word of God. Bethany McGahey, who's just, I don't know what to call her, but ninja around here who just represents our women so well as we continue to navigate how we can create a healthy church as opposed to some, so much of the abuse we've seen in other churches around here. We could go on and talk about some of our deacons, Haley Overton, K. Carol Pemberton, Patty Reese, so many of these godly women that are leading. I'm starting to feel like the Grammys right now where I'm thinking, am I leaving anybody out? The goal of this is Romans 16. 
this list of these godly saints, particularly these women who have helped make this church into what it is. And I could go on and on about GC leaders and missionaries we've got and ministry team leaders and volunteers, other staff who make this church what it is. All of which consist of married women, single women, widows, mothers, grandmothers, many of which will be down front here after this service. You wanna ask what it means to be a woman in this church and get to use you. Come talk to them, talk to, talk to them. Let them tell you, honestly, uh, where the struggles are and how they feel like they get a fly. Because we want them to. As elders, you need to know we value every one of these sisters and the gifts each of them bring to the table to help us keep Northway on mission. I personally, just my DNA, I'm, I've got a wife and five daughters. I love these women in my life. I love plurality. I love team. And I want as many rooms as possible where I have men and women speaking into things. I want to hear their voice. I want to know, I had so many women help me even in the preparation of this, this message today. And I so evaluate, uh, I value that. And, and in addition to that, we want to open as many pathways as we can to both men and women utilizing their gifts and their ministries to better strengthen and serve our church. And so I just want to challenge every member in here to really examine your own unique gifts that God has given you, your own unique abilities in light of the many needs that are available. There is one role in this church that is intended for qualified men, and that is the elders and the authoritative teaching that goes with that elder role. Everything else is fair game for us as brothers and sisters to lock arms in our complementary design, grab an oar and get to work in the mission of God. That is what we long to see as we embrace our unique roles as the family of God, serving the mission of God for the glory of God. Amen? This is why we're here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. I realize, Lord, there's been so much hurt and false teaching and damage done from this. That is not our intent, Lord. We wanna see the truths of your word for what they are is your beautiful design, this complementary design. Thank you, God, that in your mind, you saw men and women equal, beautiful, together, and yet different, purposely different. Help us here at Northway to leverage our role that you have given us uniquely so that together we can serve that both creation and mission mandate that you have given us that would not only lead to the greatest amount of your glory, but the greatest amount of flourishing in your church. We pray this in Jesus's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11, 15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.